0: life-giving church this is our little theme song that you're hearing in the background and uh it helps us anything you do rating the podcast sharing it all that stuff helps the word get out we're not trying to build the name of a church we're trying to build the name of jesus in our little local community and if you found this i hope it's useful to you thank you let's listen now we've got a long way to go this morning still we're thankful that you're here you have uh You've shown the priority of uh, honoring God with your Sunday uh, by not allowing the snow or the thing with the time, whatever that is that I can't remember. Remember you used to have to like know about it and then we all got cell phones and it just kind of figured it out for you so then it's fine now. You've shown priority. Remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've uh, you've shown great priority by being here and we're thankful that you're here. Uh, So this past week I was, um, uh, there's a woman who comes on Thursday nights and uh, she is, great with child, as the scripture would say. And I hadn't seen her for a few weeks. And so I thought, I wonder if she's had the baby. So I called her and we were talking on the phone and uh, her name's Katie. And she uh, said, she said, uh, no, I haven't had the baby yet, but I'm doing just fine Uh, because right now uh, she's like, it's all fine. But then eventually uh, her and I got to laughing about that moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you've had kids, you know this where um, you you have a baby and you're in the hospital and it's all fine because there's like all these people around that are trying to help you. And then, like they like make sure that the car seat is fine or whatever, and then they just hand the thing to you, and, and then, and then you're just like, wait, that that's it now, like, we're just, you're like, wait, like to keep this thing alive from here forward, like it's just, it's just me, I mean, like you know, two of us hopefully, but like, it, it, it's just, you kind of like feel amazed. I don't, does anyone know what I'm talking about? You're like, wait, like that's how this works. It's like, what? Uh, it reminded me of uh, Smokey the Bear, actually. Uh, 1944, uh, the longest running advertising campaign in US history started, Smokey the Bear, uh, with this familiar. I'm sure you've seen this before. What is this? You know, what is it? Only you can prevent forest fires, which which is a lie, right? Like, I mean, it isn't true. Like, it, you can do whatever you can do, and there's still going to be a whole bunch I mean, of. Do, we don't have forest fires. The whole thing is. But it, what it, the emphasis of the campaign, which you're good, thank you, by the way. The emphasis of the campaign is towards uh, trying to keep people from outsourcing caring to someone else, but to say, well, all I can do is what I can do. So only you can prevent forest fires. its uh, I don't know if you remember this moment in your life. I remember vividly being uh, dropped off at college and uh, my parents leaving, you know, and then... Uh, like eight minutes later calling to see if I was okay. And then after that, they left, you know, for real. And then, and then you're like there, and uh, you're like, it's just me. Like, I can do whatever <laughs> I want. To, I mean, I don't have any money and like, I, you know, I don't have any like a car, you know, but like in, that's the, um, what the message is about today. In fact, just say that, just say, it's just me. Now, say it with even just the faintest amount of non-Midwestern gusto. Say, it's just me. me. We've been learning about the story of Gideon for the last couple weeks as we've been making our way through uh, the book of Judges. And two things are happening. We're seeing what happens with communal choices, how, as a group of people, we tend to make similar choices, and how my individual choices make a big difference. Uh, I want to start it this way. Uh, Other people bless my life but they cannot ultimately direct it. There's so many wonderful people uh, in the room right now as I'm talking that I love to see week by week and I love, I have a relationship with, and, and you see people and you have a relationship with people and they encourage you and they, they can bless me a lot, but they can't decide for me which way I'm going. They can't direct my life. Who can direct my life? We're just gonna make this a little bit of a pattern. Who can direct my life? Just say it, say it's, it's just me, it's just me. <laughs> And that's going to come up now today uh, in the story of Gideon. We made it through the first part of his story last week. Now we're in Judges chapter 7 and 8. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll turn there. We've been learning about, in the book of Judges, this, this cycle that we go through. And this cycle is how we make choices and decisions. And we have a way of kind of going round and round around this. I've talked about this a bunch, but I'll review it again. This is, uh, it starts with sin. Sin is any choice that I make that's different than the choices that God wants me to make and sin causes all kinds of trouble, it ultimately always leads to oppression. We see it often in judges, it's political oppression, but it can be oppression of all kinds. And eventually I get down far enough that uh, I turn to God again and say, God, I need your help, will you help me? God, I need your help, will you help me? God, I need your help, will you help me? And God, because of his kindness from repentance, always brings deliverance. Deliverance brings peace. Peace is fantastic until I forget that I needed it. And then I fall back into sin. So that's what's happening here. Now we're in uh, Judges in chapter 7 and verse 1. If you're there, say there. Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. So take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. I want a big army, uh, but God doesn't need it. It's just me. So what happens here is uh, we're going to find out in a second that the people of Midian, who Israel's about to battle against. There's a war coming. That's what's about to happen. There's a fight. A battle is about to go. And on one side, there's 120,000, and on the other side, there's 30,000. And God looks at the situation and says, Now, I actually think this 30,000 is too many, because you might think if you won the battle, that you won the battle because you're like a good army. So we're going to thin this thing out just a little bit so that you'll know when we win the battle. And we are going to win the battle. You'll know that when we win the battle, we didn't win the battle because you're a good army. Uh, we won the battle because I'm God and I'm on your side. Is what he's saying. So he puts like a test in there and he says, all right, just start by this saying like, hey, if you're afraid, you're good. You can go. Kind of gutsy, like, I don't, you know, ancient world. I don't, they didn't know maybe if it was like, if you're scared, say you're scared and then they were just gonna kill them. I don't know, but it says 22,000 of the 32,000 were like, scared? Awesome, okay, cool. And then they left. And then he's like, all right, but 10,000... I don't know, 10,000, maybe still too many. So, we're gonna do this other test. They're like soldiers, so we're gonna go down to the river and give them something to drink. This is the ancient world, so everybody wasn't wearing, you know, carrying around like a metallic canteen that can also be used in a weapon in case of emergency that they got for free at like a golf outing or whatever. This is like water, you know, it's pretty sacred. So, they they get down to the water, and there's two options. Uh, You can like kind of be gentle and elegant and kind of put the water in your hands and drink it, or you can just put your face. In the river. Anybody honest enough to say, I totally would have been like a face in the river kind of person? Anybody honest enough to say? Thank you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Just a few. Okay, so good. So in this room, three out of 100 or whatever. But back then it was 9,700 out of 10,000. So perhaps you're being a little dishonest with yourself. I don't know. But the point is, I don't know that there's a lot of spiritual significance to that. It was a way of dividing. Now he's got the 300 men that he wants. And it leads us to this just simple idea thought that I want a big army, but God doesn't need a big army. I want everybody to agree with me, but God doesn't need everybody to agree with me. He just needs me. God only needs you to do what he wants you to do. And there's this wave, and I know this gets a little complicated, but there's this wave in the family of God, the people of faith, of which many in this room are part of, uh, the family of God. There's this wave that thinks that the way for God to do what he wants to do is for us to be really clever in a group in building power. So we all gotta vote the same way so we can get our people in, so we can change the rules, so everybody will be forced to do what we want them to do. It's often described as something like culture war. There's parts of that that make sense, of course. We need to like honor God by believing what his word says. And of course, like we live in a country where we have a vote and we need to use it. But there's a, I would suggest to you, a problematic thing underneath that, which is the idea that God needs us to use worldly tools to gain worldly power so that we can accomplish his purposes. And he doesn't. I wrote it down this way when I was preparing the notes. Culture is a problematic strategy because it aims to cultivate power to force change when God loves to create change in the absence of power. Okay, good. Thank you from the front row. Uh, Clearly incentivized to agree with me by being in the front, but thank you. Yes. And you see it all over the scripture that when God wants to do something miraculous, he loves to do it through the wrong people, the small people, the unpowerful people, the unsignificant people. And so we should live The way that God wants, of course. But we don't need a big army to do what God wants to do. He here is purposely making the army smaller, 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 because if God decides something needs to happen, it's going to happen no matter what. Who does God need to do exactly what he wants you to do? Who does God need? Just me. text continues. So he returned to the camp of Israel. I'm now down in verse 15. And he said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Gideon, he's feeling excited. He says, all right, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And it says he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him, he split them into three groups, so Gideon's got 100 They came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. Okay, so what's happening? It's the middle of the night, and they're standing all around a valley kind of up on the high ground. And it says that they are gathered out in the middle of the night. It says, verse 20, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches, and in their right hand the trumpets to blow So when they broke the jars, now the torch is visible. And they cried out, it says there in verse 20, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Okay, Uh, This is amazing. Just try to get this picture in your head of what happened. This really happened. This isn't like you know a Marvel movie or some like weird fantasy deal, Lord of the Rings, whatever. This is real, this really happened. So These 300 men are gathered and they're all holding a trumpet and they're all holding a torch and there's a jar over top of the torch. And so they break the jar, makes a lot of noise, and now it goes from being completely dark to completely light. And they all start blowing the trumpets. So if you were awoken from a deep sleep and you were part of an army, and all of a sudden you heard all these trumpets blaring and looked and saw all these torches all around you. Here's the key question. How many people does 300 people look like when you're awakened in the middle of the night and it's really loud, and 300 seems like 3 million? And so it says that the people of Midian, the, the warriors, they all fell into a panic, and they all fell into a panic, and it says right there in verse uh, 22, that they all started fighting each other because they were in a panic. You know kind of thing? Felt like you wanted me to do that a little more? That was as much as I had for you? Yeah, they just all fell into a panic. It just started... It's interesting to note that God both uses his power to win the battle and uses human things to win the battle. It's a miracle what happens. So we're going to see that that's the beginning of the end of the army of Midian for this era. They start destroying each other, and now God's people are going to win the battle because they followed his instructions. Just say it. Just say miracle. It's amazing, 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 amazing miracle happens here. But something else slips in that is here, and it's going to be here from the rest of the story. Just look back for a second at the end of verse 20. It shows up a couple times in the passage. I want to point to this one when it was time for the people to go to their battle, they said, it says, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So when it was like the moment of like, you know, to infinity and beyond or whatever the thing was, we're saying one, two, three, go team. They're like, for the Lord and for Gideon. That was not part of the instructions. That like often happens, people started to lower their eyes from the God that they were serving to the person that God had appointed that they were serving. And they've lost their focus and you're going to see the problems that come from here. And Gideon told them to say it. What am I getting towards? Uh, I'm getting towards unnoticed motives are a trap. It's just me because it's up to me to notice my unnoticed motives. Gideon starts to realize that something amazing is about to happen. And he had heard the stories of other judges and generations past and knew the story of Moses and of Noah that had happened in the past. And all of a sudden, what started out as purely serving God becomes eh, serving God and maybe I could get a few Instagram followers out of it. And we all struggle with what can happen when we don't notice our motives changing and our motives creeping. Glory is intoxicating. Glory is intoxicating. Uh, I read about this recently. I was reading uh, an old book. Uh, This is Pat Riley. He's the coach of the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers, and he uh, wrote a book about this time, and he described something in this book called The Disease of More. He talked about how after the first time his team won the championship, everyone on the team noticeably but slowly shifted into a more selfish mode. They had sublimated their egos to win as a group. Now they wanted more shots, more commercials, more money, more, 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 more. You can take the picture down. There is something that happens to each of us as we reach goals, go after things seek after what God has called us to do, that over time, it becomes easy for our motives to morph. I wrote it down this way. Everyone wants to be a king, but God is looking for faithful servants. And we have to be careful that when things start to go well or things start to go the way that we want, that we don't slowly start to think that it's... give a few examples. Here's one. Uh, so uh, it's a really exciting time for the church that you're part of. There's a lot of good things happening. There's new people coming week by week. There's people finding faith week by week. It's crowded, more crowded, more crowded, more crowded. And like at the beginning, there were just a few of us. And uh, we got into this building. And like a few of you, I know when you got in here for the first time, you're like, are we sure? Like, maybe can I have the offering back? It's a little iffy, you know, kind of vibe, which is okay. But uh, it's easy for things to start out in this really humble way and then over time morph into this. It's the, the cool church, the crowded church, the whatever. And that is something that we all, from the front to the back, have to fight against together. Uh, it's easy for our motives to shift. I think I've said enough about that. And it's only me that can fix that because only you know what's going on inside yourself. Only you know what's really pushing you to do the things that you're doing. We must pay attention to our uh, motives. So, we're jumping down down to the next chapter. The story of Gideon continues. I'm going to skip a couple slides here, just I want to make sure I use good use of my time. We're now in uh, chapter 8 and verse 1. So the battle's been won. And then the men of Ephraim said to him, that's to Gideon, what is this that you've done to us? not to call us when you went to fight against Midian, it says, and they accused him fiercely. So what happened was, I think, uh, all the soldiers assumed that they were all going to lose the battle and probably like their lives. And so the guys who all got sent back to their tents were kind of like, wow, cool. Then, all of a sudden, it becomes clear that these 300 men, have won freedom for their country, and now the guys who got sent back to their tents said to Gideon, "Hey, that wasn't fair. Why don't we get to be part of the fight? Hey, that wasn't fair. How come we didn't get to be part of the fight?" Uh, it says something very simple that I think is helpful to you and to me. Eventually, you disappoint everyone. So sometimes you got to just kind of get to be like, I don't know, but it's just me. Like you would think that like the one day everyone could be positive was the day when this guy led the nation to victory. And now, hey, you know how we were like slaves like 20 minutes ago? Great news, now we're free. And the guys were like, yeah, but I didn't get to be part of the thing. That's not fair. There's always like that one person, you know? There's always like that one person who can, or, and it's a lot of people. You have to come to a place of realizing, like then, I, was, I felt like that was a pretty good point, but then someone got up and kind of left the room. And you're like, well, I don't Okay, I thought that was pretty good. Nick, I don't know. I just, yeah. Eventually, you disappoint everyone. Eventually, you disappoint everyone. This is brutal because the people are grumbling because Gideon perfectly followed God's orders. It's one thing to disappoint the people in your life because you failed. It's another thing to frustrate them because you were doing nothing other than just doing what God wanted you to do. And I have to just accept that I'm here to try to please God, and I hope the people around me are blessed along the way. But all I can worry about is me, and trying to please God, and I'm going to disappoint people along the way. Uh, like 140 years ago or so, something like that. Uh, D.L. Moody, famous uh, evangelist, led a big rally, and. Hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands and thousands of people, came to faith in Jesus Christ. But then there were people in the local papers that were critical of the way that he preached and the beard that he wore, and he was kind of a substantial fella, and they thought, how can someone, there was a lot of criticism, and he said this, I love this, he said, it's clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raised some good points. Frankly, I sometimes don't like my way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Point, I think, is right. You're going to disappoint people along the way for good reasons, for bad reasons. All I can worry about is pleasing God. It's just me. Two things here that might be helpful to you. These are good verses if you struggle with pleasing people. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, this is Paul speaking, he says, But with me, it's a small thing, a very small thing, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I gotta turn my focus on what people think down to turn my focus on what God thinks up. Paul talks about this in Galatians 1:10, where he says, For if I'm seeking the approval, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? His point being, you come to places pretty often where you have to choose, am I gonna do what God wants me to do or what man wants me to do? I'm gonna disappoint people along the way. I have to realize that ultimately it's just. It's just me. So Gideon leaves those guys, and it says he came, verse 4, to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, they were exhausted, yet they were still pursuing. They were still trying to finish off killing all of the people of Midian. This was a constant problem for the people of Israel that they did part of what God wanted them to do and not all of it. So this, they're still pursuing, trying to finish the task God had given to them. Then it says, verse 5, So he said to the men of Succoth, A lot of jokes are available there about the men of Succoth. I'm just going to pass right by all of them, exhibiting hopefully a lot of maturity, although I couldn't pass by without mentioning it. He said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalumna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalumna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? The army's coming through town trying to finish the job. And they're like, hey, people who were trying to free from slavery and all that, we're like super hungry. Do you have any food? And they're like, finish the job, then we'll see. Down to verse 14 now. It says that he, uh, Gideon captured, after he killed these guys, he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth. Now, he really wanted to keep saying where they were from. And behold... Ziba and Zalumna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are their hands, hands already in your hand that we should give bread to you? It says there, verse 16, He took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Just read that again. He took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and he taught the men of Succoth a lesson, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So we meet Gideon as a very fearful person who doesn't think he comes from the right side of the tracks and has a lot of self-doubt. He wins this big battle, and people are still questioning him. And now he turns. These guys won't give him bread. These other guys said he won't be able to kill the final generals. He won't be able to finish the job. Apparently, he just like, beats the tar out of all the people that doubted him. And from here till the end of his uh, life, it's a bit of a downward spiral, unfortunately, from here. And it's because revenge is a distraction. It's just me. Gideon loses track of the mission that God has put him towards to go grab a bunch of branches and, like, beat up a bunch of guys for who knows what reason but it's because they hurt his pride. They made him angry that they wouldn't help. They frustrated him that they didn't come through. And not one person listening to me now is their best self when they have revenge on their mind. And We all have stories in our heads of people who hurt us or didn't come through for us or an ex who didn't fulfill the promises they made or still hurting us in various ways. We all have this big set of things that we're like, man, if I could just, man, if I could just. And God goes out of his way many times in his scripture to describe what should happen when we get to that place, that point. Here's one good one that has an Old Testament and New Testament reference alongside of it in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourself. Unless you're wondering if God's going to take care of it." He says, "No, no, leave it it to the wrath of God. Now he's quoting the Old Testament when he says, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The reason why revenge, which is taking unforgiveness so far that I'm now going to make you pay as much as I can make you pay for the thing that you did for hurting me. The problem with revenge is it is never satisfied. The person seeking revenge may be able to get some part of what they want, and then they realize it doesn't satisfy. I like this. T.D. Jakes says that revenge is a lazy form of grief. You could think about that one for a long time. I feel hurt about something, so I want to make a person pay, but it doesn't actually help me change what I feel about what I lost. Charles Spurgeon, the old preacher, wrote it down this way, which I love even more, maybe. Revenge is like biting a dog because a dog bit you. Okay, why is that such a clear point? Is biting a dog back going to (laughs) help? And now who looks like the idiot? We get distracted. And so there's that thing that's inside getting serious now. There's that thing that's inside you and me that is all the things that we feel about all the things that have happened. And maybe you're blessed to have some good friends or a good counselor or people in your life that kind of understand, but they can't completely understand because you're the only person walking the road you're walking. And when we ask people or make them completely understand, they can't completely understand and we actually damage the relationship and we like pretend they can. Only God knows what you feel about how you got right here, the true parts and the untrue parts. And we think that I can fix it by making them hurt because of the way that they made me hurt. And you have to just sort of like figure out how to trust God enough to get over top of it to realize when it comes to dealing with what I feel about what got me right here. It's just me. Making them hurt, making them pay, making them hurt even more than they made me hurt, dealing with them, saying clever things, doing things, being all passive aggressive and subtle like so many people are good at doing. is isn't going to help. It's not going to make it different. So I have to just realize that, like, I got God with me. It's just me. So we're almost at the end now. Uh, Gideon rose up, and he he found these guys. He killed them, by the way. So they were wrong. He did kill them, Zeba and Zaluma, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And then the men of Israel said, verse 22 to Gideon, Rule over us, and, and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said, I won't rule over you, and my son won't rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. Well, you shouldn't have amended quite yet, because it's a trap, but that was good. So uh, they say to him, they're, being clear, they're clearly saying, we want you to be our king. And Gideon is like, I'm not going to be your king, God is your king. Okay, that's good so far. Then Gideon said, next verse, but let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings uh, from the spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we'll willingly give them. So they spared a cloak and every man uh, threw... They spread a cloak and every man threw his earrings into the spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments that were worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So basically what Gideon does, he does a little clever, passive-aggressive thing where they say, will you be a king? Will you be our king? He's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to be your king. But like, you know, I'd like all the privileges of being your king. I, I won't like take the title, but... You know, like when you meet those people, and like they're like, "We're not married, but like we've lived together for 20 years, and we have three kids." You're like, "Well, maybe you're not." I mean, you are, though, right? Like, it's like that's kind of okay. That's what Gideon's doing here. He's like, "I I won't take the title because I know that I shouldn't take the title, but I want all the privileges that come with the title." Uh, Clever compromises can be really addicting, friends. Clever compromises can be really addicting. And rather than thinking that I'm fooling everyone else, I must realize it's just me. He knew better than to say yes. He cleverly avoided using the word king. But he justified his behavior, which was to take privileges through treasure and riches that didn't belong to him. They belonged to God. We do this so often. So often, we fall into the trap of coming up with a way of justifying our compromises, our bad choices, and thinking that because someone else will buy the excuse that we're giving, that God doesn't see right through it that's uh we try like I'm just going to explain it away this way um, i know I know what i know i know I know what God's word says, but like about. You know, I know what God's word says about sexuality and all that. I know, I know what God's word says. But like when that was written, you know, people were getting married when they were like 16 or 17 years old. And like you just can't possibly think that like in the world today where, you know, it's just like economically, it's so difficult to like be able to support yourself at that age. And so realistically, you can't possibly get married until you're nearly 30 today. And then, you know, all the problems and the baby boomers and all those problems that they caused, and like the government and this and that. It's just what I'm basically saying is like I know what the Bible says, but like I just it's not that big of a deal, right? It's like a game. It's like, yeah, but I know, but like, okay, but all right, but like, but like, do you know? I mean, do you know how Illinois spends our money? Like, is it really, does God really want me to give my money in taxes over to those people and all that? Have You heard about all this stuff? Have you heard about what they're teaching in the public schools today? Can you? I just can't. I just, I think all things. You know, I know, I know, I know, like what the bill says, but like, I just think if I could kind of like cut and cut and cut and cut, I really don't think I should have to pay the whole thing because like, you know, just kind of. I could do a couple more. You want me to do a couple more? I don't really want to do it anymore. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But our ways of explaining why we're not going to forgive that person our ways of explaining why the stuff that we're looking at isn't stuff that Christians shouldn't be looking at, our ways of saying, I know what I should do, but when I give you my little spiel that I've kind of crafted, here's why I shouldn't have to. Sometimes you can put that over on people, right? Sometimes people will buy your excuses. But God sees right through it. And the relationship that really matters is the one with God and me. So I'm out of time. I want to get to the end now. So Gideon made a... Uh, verse 27. Just follow me here because I'm going to skip a couple of things. Thank you. And Gideon made an ephod of all the stuff that he gathered. That's like a big kind of... Like a beautiful cape. He put it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel, here's a word, whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So... Midian was subdued by the, before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. That's the last part of that cycle we've been talking about. But then uh, Jerubbabel the son of Joash, went. that's Gideon's son, went and lived in his own house. Now, Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. Which I always like when the Bible just makes sure you understand. Now, noting that he has 70 sons, I want to make it clear that he had many wives, Just in case you were wondering if he had 70 sons from one wife, I just want to be really clear, he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. So we see again uh, this cycle that we go through. We've seen now, we've gone through it again. There's this way in which uh, we fall into the traps over and over and over and over. And so it can become a, you can feel it, like, we're almost really close to done now. It can become really easy to, like, let the reality of how powerful sin has a hold on us and how difficult it can be to make steps forward trap us into sort of just comparing ourselves to the people around us. So Gideon, ultimately, uh, scripturally speaking, he is not a hero. He did some good things that God wanted him to do. He was afraid the whole time and he took all kinds of glory and credit for himself that he probably shouldn't have. But he was better than like the guys who just were too tired and went back to the tent, too scared and didn't want to fight. He was better than the people who didn't turn to God at all. He gave God part of his heart. He didn't give God his whole life and his whole heart. And this is where many people of faith live in the world today is it is so easy to look at the world around us and be like, it was snowing and I lost an hour of sleep and I still made it to church. I mean. And we have to force ourselves to not take our cues from the world out there that doesn't honor God at all. But to think about the fact, like it says in Corinthians, that we will one day meet him face to face. We will stand before God. We will give an account of what we've done with what he's given us, with who he's allowed us to be, with the resources that he's given us. And when we stand before a holy God, there's not going to be anybody else there. rather than getting all bogged down and distracted by all the stuff around me. I want to keep my eyes in my focus. It's coming, friends. We're going to meet him face to face. And we've almost, maybe-ish, kind of made it through another winter, and soon it'll be another spring, and then another summer, and then another fall, and life is passing us by. And when we meet him face to face, we're not going to be thinking about the revenge that we tried to get or the resources that we were trying to go after or the frustrations that went our way or even the good things that went our way. We're going to see a holy God and we're going to fall on our knees and say, I wish I wish I would have obeyed more. I wish I would have given more. I wish I would have killed that sin even sooner. I wish I would have. I wish, and right now, we still have the opportunity. We're breathing and God is with us and it's not over. And I pray today, if you hear his voice, you wouldn't harden your heart. There's been a lot of things that we've talked about today, and I hope that something has, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through it. We meet him face to face, it's just me. Would you bow your head with me? So, um, Lord, I'm just asking by faith that you would uh, work through your word today. I pray that uh, you would do something useful out of the things that we've talked about. Please help us, Lord. We want to serve you well. We need your help. We need your help. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? This has been the Good News in the Neighborhood Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the song. I hope it's been helpful to you. We'll see you again soon. This is good news.